the week in doubt, religious news stories from a skeptical perspective, random musings on everything from pop culture to politics, and even audio documentaries on weird and interesting topics like Krampus and the history of the holidays. The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, and this is episode 324, I believe, and I've decided that going forward, and this is pretty much the unspoken rule anyway, that only these news story episodes will get uh, sequentially numbered. Did I fake you guys out? Did you think all you were getting this week was that uh, four-minute Bilby documentary? Uh, I thought I'd do a, you know, a, a full-length unscripted episode as well. Full disclosure, I think it's been a couple of weeks since the last uh, Patreon bonus show, anyway, since I've had a drop of alcohol. So I've got some rum and, uh, you don't even want to know, high-voltage Mountain Dew. <laughs> you gotta work with what you got. And I also took a, uh, a couple of Kratom. I think I uh, mixed this drink a little too strong. Oh, man. And yes, my YouTube channel was re-monetized, I guess, uh, shall we say. And to be honest, I was actually feeling pretty pessimistic about the uh, whole thing. I didn't expect such a positive outcome, at least not that soon. In fact, I, I think I was being kind of a wise ass when I reached out to YouTube on Twitter because I didn't expect them to respond. I'm like, hey, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing myself, but I was like, hey, YouTube, um, help. Can someone please read this screenshot? And it was a screenshot of an email I tried to send them. And I continued, uh, I tried to email you, but I don't have 100,000 subscribers. Which is true, it, to use the um, whatever official email channel there is for content creators, you need like 100,000 subscribers. But uh, I think within a day, um, yeah, they reached out to me and probably a day or two later, all of a sudden, like magic, uh, I went into um, my creator studio and everything was... Uh, and monetization, rather, was turned back on again. And I won't bother getting sidetracked and going into that whole story again. If you're interested in that uh, harrowing tale and you're not up to speed, uh, you can look for a epi an episode I published uh, entitled, Not So Imaginatively, uh, My YouTube Channel Was Demonetized, or something like that. But anyway, enough about that. Let's move on to a couple of news stories. So since the last news story episode, well, to be honest, uh, the Sri Lanka thing, that uh, that horrible terror attack, I can't remember if that happened technically before or after the last news story episode. But there was that, and then there was that uh, synagogue shooting. And to be honest, I sometimes feel torn whether or not I should even cover stories like this. Because I feel like, you know, we've all been inundated so much in these horrible stories about mass shootings and terror attacks that I don't know if it almost borders on disaster porn to even talk about them because 
<sighs> you know, as, as, as cynical or pessimistic as it sounds, I mean, is anything that I say really going to change anything? And am I going to just end up bumming you guys out, you know? Uh, but then on the other hand, I feel almost obligated or a sense of duty that as someone who's a non-believer with a kind of uh, secular humanist worldview, that I have a duty to kind of speak up when people do horrible things in the name of religion. So I guess, yeah, we'll take a quick look at both of those stories. And so we're probably all aware by now that ISIS has taken credit for that uh, Sri Lanka attack. And here's a story from the New York Times. We knew it was coming. Sri Lanka sees ISIS's hand in attacks. And this is dated uh, May 3rd, and it's by Jeffrey Gentleman. Okay. Um, Darisha Bastions and Hannah Beach. <laughs> I was going to make some kind of irreverent joke about it taking three people to write one article, but I know this is a serious matter. Um, so Colombo, uh, is that how you pronounce it? Seems pretty straightforward. Colombo, Sri Lanka. The suicide bombs were packed with ball bearings, iron nails, and the explosive TATP, all hallmarks of the way the Islamic State likes to commit mass murder. One of the bombers had traveled to Syria, another trained in Turkey. One man arrested hours after the attacks had commuted between Sri Lanka and Syria, leading investigators to identify him as a possible middleman between the Islamic State and Sri Lankan militants. As Sri Lankan investigators reveal key details from the suicide blast that killed more than 250 people in churches and hotels across the island on Easter Sunday, more evidence points to a role by the Islamic State in inspiring and perhaps directing the slaughter. Even as the Islamic State has been rooted or routed from the territories in Iraq and Syria where its black flag once flew with impunity, the Sri Lanka attacks show the group is still capable of orchestrating carnage through loyalists in far-flung countries. So yeah, we all know the story. Uh, people brutally killing other human beings over religious differences or in the name of religion or whatever. Uh... To me, it's, it's almost inexpressibly grotesque. Uh, it's mankind showing its darkest, most debased face. It's, uh, it's like if life wasn't hard enough, people brutally unmaking their fellow human beings because they have different ideologies. Then in a similar vein, we have this complete wackadoo. Uh, that's the technical term. This guy who went to that synagogue and murdered a 60-year-old woman who was trying to save the rabbi who the uh, the shooter was targeting. I believe the rabbi had to have surgery on his hand, lost a finger. Just awful stuff. And so this article is from the Washington Post. The alleged synagogue shooter was a churchgoer who talked Christian theology, raising tough questions for evangelical pastors. Before he allegedly walked into a synagogue in Poway, is that it, California, and opened fire, John Ernest appears to have written a seven-page letter spelling out his core beliefs— that Jewish people guilty in his view of faults ranging from killing Jesus to controlling the media deserve to die. 
that his intention to kill Jews would glorify God. And here I feel like we're going all the way back to uh, the Weak and Doubt 101, you know, where uh, how many times have I said it on this show how Christianity is essentially a Jewish religion. It's a religion with Jewish roots, kind of the daughter religion of Judaism. Jesus, if he uh, existed, I'm kind of agnostic on the uh, historicity of uh, Christ. Uh, Jesus was or would have been a Jew. His uh, apostles, disciples, Jewish, the masses he preached to, Jewish. Many of the most beloved New Testament figures, Joseph, Mary, you know, James, Peter, John the Baptist, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Paul, all Jewish. So Jews supposedly being guilty of deicide, running the media. This is like anti-Semitism 101. 101 again, maybe that should be the drinking game word of the week. And it is true that since at least the Middle Ages, Jews have been kind of pushed to the fringes of society, uh, relegated to certain professions. And uh, statistically speaking, I mean, how many people of Jewish descent or, you know, who happen to be Jewish uh, work in the media? I have no idea. I don't care. I don't think there's some grand Jewish Zionist conspiracy ooh, to control us all through the media or through uh, Avenger movie, Avengers movies or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't care. But these are the anti-Semitic talking points that, you know, you hear all the time. And we are living in a, in a, scary, a scary time where uh, white supremacists, uh, anti-Semites are really kind of feel emboldened. And the weird thing is, I've probably mentioned this on the show before, I have no love for Trump, can't stand the guy, but I wouldn't call Trump anti-Semitic. You know, he has a Jewish son-in-law, a daughter who converted to Judaism. He does his best to be, you know, cozy with Israel and Netanyahu. And yet a lot of far-right types do feel kind of emboldened under him and see him as a kind of figurehead. Maybe not a perfect figurehead because, you know, he seems kind of cozy with the Jews, but because of his strong stance uh, against immigration, the way he's kind of embraced by right-wing, edgelord, Chan culture, whatever, you know what I mean? He they, they look at him as both kind of a walking meme and also their guy and the closest thing they can have to a uh, at the moment to a white supremacist president you know and it's kind of funny there's been examples in the news of uh <laughs> ironically of um of some jewish people also kind of really embracing Trump and thinking of them as his guy, maybe because of, of his uh, stance on Israel and that kind of thing. There was a story in the news maybe uh, two or three weeks ago about this woman who saw a guy with a MAGA hat in, in some kind of shop or something, and she had a complete meltdown, just started screaming at the guy, calling him a racist and, and this and that. Turns out, you know, they were interviewing the guy. The guy takes his hat off 
and he's wearing a yarmulke uh, underneath. Uh, he's Jewish. And then also um, the story I was just talking about, you know, about that horrible synagogue shooting, um, that rabbi who was wounded in that shooting, uh, he talked on the phone with Trump. And I think he, he told Trump that he was a, a messenger from God or something like that. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, man, after everything you've been through, okay, you can say whatever you want, but that's a little, it's a little, yeah. I know there's a Yiddish word for, uh, you know, screwy. Uh, I just can't think of it right now. <laughs> Don't speak Yiddish myself, but, uh, you know, I've watched uh, every season of Northern Exposure. Dr. Joel Fleischman. Okay, but once again, let's move on. Uh, I have a couple of clips. They're pretty lengthy. I don't know if I'll interject my opinion as we go along or just let them play through all the way. Uh, unscripted, working without a net here. Maybe I'll just start playing the first clip and we'll see how it goes. So this first clip is from the David Pakman show. I remember I was listening to the podcast about a week ago and there was this section of the show where Pacman is talking about Shapiro's most recent appearance on Rogan and how Shapiro kind of reveals his hypocrisy. And uh, I just remember for some reason feeling really compelled, like, oh, I, I have to put this in the next episode folder and, uh, and play that on the show. But here we go. If you listen really closely to Ben Shapiro... Uh, you will often realize that even though he's speaking confidently and he's speaking quickly, that what he's saying is actually not making that much sense. And I have a couple of really funny examples of that. And Joe Rogan, I don't even know that Joe Rogan realized how much he exposed Ben Shapiro in the clips that I'm going to play for you today. So to set it up, this gets to a portion of the interview between Ben Shapiro and Joe, Joe Rogan, where I guess I would say it's about Ben Shapiro's religious beliefs. And uh, Joe Rogan's asking questions about Ben Shapiro's um, Orthodox Judaism, and mostly they're talking about homosexuality, which I'm going to get to a little bit later in the clip. But Joe and Ben sort of agree that there are some historical reasons why things became commandments in the Old Testament, for example. They agree that there are some historical realities at the time which explain to us, like, for example, the Bible mentions man shall not lie with another man or whatever the phrase is. I don't even care. But the, 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 the line that's pointed to uh, that people point to is saying homosexuality is bad. That wasn't in the Bible because the people who wrote the Bible thought in a thousand years, maybe there will be gay people. It was there because they saw gay people at the time and they decided we're going to put something in the Bible about it. Okay. The, the, the example doesn't really matter, but the idea is the Bible reflects things that were happening at the time. So Joe Rogan brings up uh, a sort of naturalistic explanation for why eating pork is not okay in Judaism. It's also not okay in Islam. The same analysis would sort of apply uh, related to uh, the cooking temperature of pork and bacteria and whatever. You'll hear it in a second. And Ben Shapiro says very clearly he doesn't like naturalistic explanations for this stuff. Check it out and pay really close attention here to what Ben Shapiro says. Like the very reason to have a commandment is because certain people in your community are behaving in a particular way, presumably. Right. There's no commandment not to take your head and shove it in a meat grinder. Well, this is also the argument against pork is because they didn't understand trichinosis. They understand you have to cook the meat to 145 degrees and pork parasites, which are very dangerous for people. So 
I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of naturalistic explanations for religion. Do I think that's a good one, though, for pork? I mean... Okay, so I'm starting to remember why I wanted to play this on the show so badly. And the thing is, I'm not even um, all that antagonistic towards Ben Shapiro. Um, I don't agree with most of what comes out of his mouth, but I... Uh, but... It's not like I give him much thought or I go out of my way to kind of take him down on the show. But I just remember some of the things he was saying. I'm like, damn, I I have to kind of counter that on the show. So I thought that was absolutely priceless. Uh, What do you say? I'm not a big fan or I'm not really a fan of naturalistic explanations for, you know, religious things. And maybe I'm putting words into his mouth, but it seems to me that the most, you know, obvious reason why that would be is because naturalistic explanations strip the magic away from your belief system. You know what I mean? But so what? What should matter is what's true, right? Not what you want to be true. And the whole thing about trichinosis being an explanation for the prohibition against eating pork... Uh, I don't know how much water that holds. I think um, Christopher Hitchens mentions that in God is Not Great, too. As in God is Not Great also, not God is Not Great Part 2. Although if there was a Part 2, that'd be awesome and I'd read it. Yeah, there's a section I really like of God is Not Great. I think it's entitled A Brief Digression on the Pig or Why Heaven Hates Ham. And Hitchens posits that same thing. I know uh, my friend Crocoduck was saying that there's some scholarly pushback or academic pushback against this idea that uh, trichinosis was behind that particular prohibition. So I don't know. It sounds plausible, but... Uh, I don't know. Like, I think you could make an argument, maybe. Okay. Ben Shapiro says very clearly he's against naturalistic explanations for religion, meaning he doesn't like explaining religious precepts with sort of real-world justifications from nature. Ben Shapiro said very clearly he's against that. Fine. So then about 90 seconds go by. Okay, this next clip is from 90 seconds after what I just played for you. And Ben Shapiro gives a naturalistic explanation for Moses parting the Red Sea. He just said he's not into naturalistic explanations, and here he gives a naturalistic explanation 90 seconds later. Do you think he was resurrected? No, that's not not a a Jewish belief. Okay, I just want to check. Yeah, no, we're we're not into... (laughs) We're not into miracle stories. No, that's that's not... You don't have any miracles? No, not not, not by Jesus. They're they're ones in the Old Testament. Yeah, you've got Moses splitting the sea and all that. What do you think happened there? What do I think happened there? Yeah. Well, I'll go with the Maimonidean explanation that there was, I mean, it says in the Bible there was a strong east wind. Uh, So there's a naturalistic explanation for a physical phenomenon. That makes sense. I mean, that's that's what Maimonides is constantly trying to do is read nature back into the Bible. mm, Yeah. He says it's the miracle of Moses parting the Red Sea. And he naturalistically explains it, wind in the Red Sea area, which is a very common naturalistic explanation for the parting of the Red Sea in the Old Testament, which he just said he's not in favor of. He's not in favor of those types of explanations, except all of a sudden 
when he is. And this reminds me of naturalistic explanations for Noah's Ark. If you talk to some religious people about Noah's Ark, they'll say, no, you know, we've sort of identified where there were floods at the time based on um, geological records, and uh, here is how it all could have worked, so on and so forth. Never explains uh, how some of the species need salt water and some need fresh water, and how did they get all of that onto the Ark for the time it had to be there. It doesn't explain how uh, there are carniv carnivorous animals, and if you only had two of each species, uh, didn't any of them get eaten? Did you start with more than two and they were eaten down to two? Or did carnivorous animals get fed some kind of soylent or, or vegan diet during... Soylent? Soylent green as dinosaurs! None of that stuff is explained, but at least the, the specifics of the flood are sometimes explained naturalistically with Noah's Ark. This is the same thing here, naturalistically explaining the parting of the Red Sea after saying he doesn't like naturalistic explanations. Now, I know some people will say, David, hold on. Ben Shapiro says Maimonides gives that explanation. It doesn't matter. Ben Shapiro said he's not for naturalistic explanations of religious stories or miracles or phenomena. And then 90 seconds later, he insta-flips on himself. And it was a missed opportunity, actually, for Joe to call him out on that. So then they get back to homosexuality. Uh, and to Dave Rubin's marriage to his husband. Dave Rubin is a cultural cr critic and political commentator who engages in uh, the battle of ideas where the free market allows the best ideas to float to the top, sort of like uh, fat on, on milk or butter, whatever. Uh, anyway, they get to Dave Rubin's marriage, which Ben Shapiro has been saying for a while how he would not go to Dave's Rub Dave Rubin's wedding, or I guess wouldn't have gone if they had been friends at the time. I don't, I don't know that they knew each other at the time. Um, but he'd still have Dave and his husband over for dinner because going to the wedding goes against his religious beliefs. But I guess having them to dinner doesn't. And Joe Rogan just exposes the idiocy, idiocy of it so easily. Right. And one of the things that I, I – the reason I keep coming back to the governmental regulation point is because my view is that if your view of discipline is not my view of discipline, good on you. Right. right? Like go, go do what you want to do. Like I've never had a conversation with Dave Rubin about – about him being a gay guy. Right, but you did it, say that you like wouldn't go to his marriage, right? Well, I said, right, as a, as a religious person, I can't say, I, I can't actively participate in something that I consider to be a sin, but I would go out to dinner with Dave and his husband anytime. Like, my wife and I would do that, of course. We'd have him over to our house with his husband. There's no, you don't find any contradiction between your religious perspective and your personal perspective in that regard, that you, would, that you wouldn't be there for religious reasons but that you would be there for personal reasons? Like, if it no, wasn't, if you, would you go to the after party? Like, if you wouldn't go to the wedding, would you go to the after party? Anything that was a celebration of same-sex marriage, no. Wow. So anything, but, you like... You wouldn't even go to the party? No. I mean, that's it. <laughs> and that's, that, what I if mean, there was I'm... a barbecue the next day? Would you consider it <laughs> a tag-on? <laughs> you know, it's... it's it, and again, like, I'm not sure why... I, I'm not a good party person, so I'm not sure why anybody would want me at their party, frankly. I'm oh, kind of you'd a be a great party. I've, but, I haven't been to a party with you, but I went to a dinner party with you. That's true. We had a great time. That, that was a good time. That that's was a good time. A, that's a funny picture, man. That is a wild People picture. People don't know what the fuck to think about that picture. <laughs> that when, is certainly it, true. Eric and Jordan and Sam, and, Sam yeah. and it's, it's a Dave. Wild picture. And... So Joe Rogan's being sort of funny about it. He's very presciently exposing the absurdity of what Ben Shapiro is saying. Going out to dinner with a gay couple who you recognize as a gay couple is recognizing the idea that they are a couple, which his religion considers a sin. It's a very sort of mealy-mouthed 
weird gray area to say, well, I wouldn't go to the wedding ceremony because then I would be endorsing something my religion believes is a sin. And I wouldn't go to the wedding reception and just have dinner because I would be recognizing the sin. But like a couple days later, I'd go to dinner with them as a couple, which of course is recognizing them as a couple, which his religion believes is, is a sin. But that would sort of be okay in Ben Shapiro's mind. And, you know, he says he wouldn't go to anything that celebrates same-sex marriage. I hate to break it to you, but when you go out with a couple who is married and it's a gay couple, couple, you're effectively celebrating or at minimum recognizing something that your religion teaches you is a sin. It is the fence sitting that is so mealy-mouthed that I found just laughable here. And here Joe Rogan actually does a really good job when he says, what about the reception? What about a barbecue the day after? Like at what point is going to hang out with Dave Rubin and his husband, disconnected enough from the fact that it's a gay couple that's married under the law, that you can sort of rationalize it post facto in a way that feels okay for what your religion teaches. This is why it's all nonsense and really nice job by Joe Rogan in exposing it. Yeah, so I think both uh, Rogan and Pacman kind of got him there. <laughs> I, I don't know how you wriggle out of that one, especially the thing where... <laughs> He's saying he doesn't care for naturalistic <laughs> explanations. Then, uh, like Pacman said, 90 seconds later, <laughs> he's talking about Maimonides and wind as an explanation for the parting of the Red Sea. I remember watching documentaries way back in the day, probably when I was uh, in my teens or younger, about the Exodus and them talking about crosswinds as a naturalistic explanation for the parting of the uh, the Red Sea. Then there's the whole thing. Was there actually a mistranslation? Was it actually Reed Sea? Are we even in the right location? Uh, you know? So now I'll move on to the next clip. And this one also involves Joe Rogan. It's actually a uh, clip from a recent episode where he had Graham Hancock back on. Graham Hancock and Rogan are actually, uh, well, they have a great rapport and they've developed a friendship over the years. Rogan started out as a fan of uh, Hancock. And seeing as I'm a skeptic, a non-believer, etc., it might seem kind of odd to some people, but I'm actually kind of fond of Graham Hancock. That doesn't mean I have to believe or buy into all his theories, um, he's kind of painted as someone who, rightly or wrongly, who holds fringe theories. And I actually think his newer theories are actually far more grounded and plausible in comparison to his old Fingerprints of the Gods uh, stuff. But I really like this clip. It kind of uh, appeals to my hippy-dippy side. Uh, I just really enjoyed it. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question whether whether visionary substances are the only way uh, to get into altered states of consciousness and and uh, i would say they, they, they are definitely not. Uh, of course, there are visionary substances which are which are used in native american uh, vision vision quests i've 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 had the privilege of 
peyote ceremony uh, with the Native American church. Um, I've never done that. What is that like? I, I loved it actually. I thought I thought it was I thought it was amazing. It it, it doesn't overpower you in the way that DMT or ayahuasca does. Uh, it's 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 much gentler. It's much more. You feel much more integrated and connected with 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 nature. Your thought processes are quite are, are quite clear. It felt it felt just like a very beautiful and healing experience. And I love the ceremony that I'm in. I'm inside a, a teepee with with thirty or forty other people, and that there are there are specific roles that are assigned to those different individuals. One will keep the door, another will be responsible for the fire, which is a work of art in itself. Just gazing into that fire and the glowing, the glowing embers is enough to induce an altered state of consciousness uh, on its own. Incredible drumming, which, which drives your state of consciousness into a, a kind of peak, peak experience. This is a technology for accessing other levels of experience and other levels of reality. And it's clear that the Native Americans had a number of advanced technologies in, in this area. The sun dance doesn't use a substance, but it uses austerity, it uses pain to drive an altered state of consciousness. The objective in every case seems to be, let's just for a while get ourselves out of the narrow, rigid frame of the alert problem-solving state of consciousness. We all need that, it's incredibly useful. Hunter-gatherers need it just as much as people in, in cities need it. But it's not the only state of consciousness available to human beings. And maybe that's one of the big mistakes that we're making in our culture um, and was not made uh, in, in shamanistic societies. That, that is a, a really interesting breakdown that maybe that is one of the big mistakes we're making in our culture. When people point to the problems that we have in this country, one of the problems we have is our, our inability to connect with each other yeah. or to recognize that we're all sharing this space and time together and instead wanting to uphold our own religious or ideological ideas as being the only one way to get going, yeah. the only one way to get through. And one of the things that I've found with these psychedelic experiences, it, it, it really makes ideologies seem, uh, if not preposterous, at the very least insignificant in comparison to human experiences. Absolutely. The experience of, of camaraderie and friendship and, and love. It, it, you realize, like, oh, this is what's important. This is what's, what it's, what's this important. Is what it's is, really about. Yes, yeah, not not yeah. enforcing your ideas or yeah. pushing them on other people and forcing people to behave the way you behave, but yeah. instead, love. And think about religious ideas, which cause so much division, so much chaos, so much hatred, so much fear, so much suspicion in the world today. Um, is it really what we want to do as human beings, simply to accept a package of ideas that were believed in by our ancestors, to accept them whole, without question, as absolute fact, which we regard as such authoritative fact that in some cases, we're willing to be deeply unpleasant to people who hold different views, or perhaps even kill them. Uh, we've had this, you know, this recent event in, 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 in Sri Lanka, a, yes. pr primarily a religiously motivated terrorist event. It, it, happens, it happens all over the world that people feel so convinced that the inherited package of ideas that they had nothing to do with creating, and that they have never questioned. They're so convinced that those ideas are right that in extreme cases, they're actually prepared to kill other human beings who hold different ideas. They, are they so insecure in their own, in their own beliefs that, that they're prepared to go to that level of actually murdering another human being who holds it? They're so threatened by the other beliefs that other human beings hold. So it's an abnegation of our responsibility as human beings. We should be questioning things. We should not be accepting packages of ideas intact, fully formed, and using them to drive the way we behave towards one another. That was part of the human story, but we need to move on from that. I and mean, it's a very dangerous situation in a very complex modern world with billions of human beings 
beings on the planet, to have these kind of energies being generated where certain groups of people are saying, we are absolutely right and you are absolutely wrong. We are superior. You are inferior. This is a very, very dangerous path that we're, that we're on and it needs to be changed. Personally, I know this is not a, a comment that will go down well with many people, but I am strongly opposed to nationalism. I don't, I don't see any virtue in nationalism. It is an accident of birth, which nation you were born in. It was nothing that you did for your own merit. You didn't earn that. You were born by accident in, in a particular nation. Why should we automatically feel that other people who were born by accident in that particular nation have something special in common with us and that we together are a group who are much more important than other groups of people? I've been privileged to spend my life traveling around the world, living with communities all over, over the world. And one thing that really comes across to me strongly, it's, it's, it should be a cliche, and yet it's not, is that we are all one family, that humans are intimately interconnected all around the world, that you can go to the remotest area of the Amazon jungle and find the same hopes, the same fears, the same dreams that we have in industrialized cities shared by the hunter-gatherers in the, in, in the middle of the Amazon. So our similarities as human beings and what we share in common at the emotional level and at the level of love and at the level of heart are far more important than our differences that are defined by the nation or the political group in which we, in which we grew up in. And when I when I say I'm against nationalism, I need also to make clear that does not mean, and I hope I'm not taken out of context by others who are listening to this, that does not mean I'm in favor of world government. I detest governments. That's another thing we need to grow out of. We don't need governments anymore. If we have them, they should have a very minimal role uh, in our society. I think it's possible for the human race to relate as one family without leaders and governments who are exploiting the worst aspects of our character, the lowest common denominator of our society, deliberately encouraging fears and hatreds and suspicion. What responsible leaders should be doing is encouraging love and unity and their Failure to do that, in my view, disqualifies them from the leadership role entirely. And that's why I've often said I would not, uh, I would like to see a situation in which no head of state can be appointed to that position unless he or she has first had 12 sessions of ayahuasca. <laughs> that would be the condition. Yeah, so I really like that. I think the only place where I may have kind of disagreed with Graham Hancock is when he was talking about government. He was saying that government should only have, you know, a very minimal involvement. I guess it depends on what he sees that minimal involvement is being, or, or how does that manifest? Because I don't like the idea of government overreach or the government sticking its nose into the business of the individual um, more than it should or whatever. Uh, but I think especially in a society as big as ours, we need some kind of regulation to make sure, you know, the roads get paved, uh, to make sure that corporations aren't taking advantage of people. And I'd like to see healthcare start to be thought of as a fundamental human right. And as I think I alluded to, or just plain outstated <laughs> in a recent episode as long as it could be realistically funded and maintained, I would like to see uh, some kind of um, single-payer health care system or something like that, government-provided health care, as long as it's quality 
healthcare, and that, as I said before, it can be realistically maintained and funded. I'd rather see the government helping to ensure that cancer doesn't bankrupt families rather than, you know, hemorrhaging obscene amounts of money on foreign wars or whatever, you know. But I'm not all that well-versed on politics or the logistics of the healthcare system or whatever, so I better uh, stop there and not wade out uh, too far. But with that, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want help to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. Stop anytime you want. Or uh, I've always hesitated to do this because it feels like I'm giving out sensitive information, but I guess an email is not really all that private, you know? If anyone wants to donate to the show via PayPal, instead of hunting for the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page, there's that alliteration, you could simply use philalbertelli at gmail.com. Uh, and now that my email's out there, you know, you, I don't know, you can troll me or uh, try to contact me if you have any questions about the show or suggestions. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.